We've been preaching through 1 Corinthians. If this is your first time here, we preach through verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. We come today to chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, and Paul has been dealing with many issues in this church, this Corinthian church in the first century. One of the biggest issues that he's dealt with thus far, and really the main one through the first four chapters, is how they saw church leaders. The problem was that their sinful pride was leading to much division in the church. We saw last week that one of the ways that Paul helped them understand this issue and navigate this issue was to um, help them see that the church, that the whole body together is the temple of God. All of these believers together filled with the Holy Spirit are being built into like a new spiritual house together. And together they are God's temple where God lives here. Right? God lives with his people. That's the point of the temple and the tabernacles we saw last week. And so to destroy the church over sinful reasons is likened to taking the temple apart stone by stone. In chapter 4, Paul continues with their prideful allegiances and how silly they are. And Paul's point in this chapter, as he concludes really this section on division in church leadership... Because in chapter five, 5 and following, he deals with sexual sin in the church. So in chapter 4, he helps them understand that, that one of the characteristics of a godly leader and a godly pastor or apostle um, or a church member or a Christian in general is humility. The cure for their division is the Corinthians need to be humbled and understand who they are in light of the gospel and who they are together and who their leaders are, particularly in this case, who Paul is and who Apollos is. It is these men that they are following like, like cult-like tendencies and Apollos' people are against Paul's people and Paul's people are against Apollos' people and it's just crazy silliness. And so humility is needed to be had by the people in the church and also any faithful leader, pastor, church, um, pastor, apostle, or elder needs to be humble as well. In fact, this is how he says it. Look at verse 1. This is how one should regard us. And he's speaking of Paul and Apollos and Peter, who they are dividing over. This is how you should think of us, Corinthians. This is how you should see us. Because they were lifting them up on pedestals to be worshipped, to be celebrated. This is how you should regard us. He says here, as servants of Christ. Now, let's be clear, because the word servant that is translated in many of our modern translations is essentially the word slave. The translations kind of soften that language because of the connotations that has in our English language. But this Greek word is literally slave. How should you think of us, Corinthians, as slaves of Christ? As a matter of fact, this is a, there's different words used for slave in the New Testament. One is doulos. This one is a different kind of one and actually is the lowest of all kinds of slaves. It's just not a slave, like a bondservant, which is normally how it is referred to in the New Testament. He wants them to see them, and he uses the word as a galley slave. 
A galley slave was a rower who rowed a boat. And in this big boat, as, as the Romans or the Greeks were traveling on the seas, they would, they would have slaves on the ship and there would be different tiers. The bottom tier, the bottom rowers were the worst of the slaves. They were considered to be the lowest, the poorest, the most to be disregarded slaves. Their job was just to keep rowing. That's all they were good for. Keep rowing the boat. So Paul is using this, I mean, explosive analogy to help them understand. You think of us up here? We want you to regard us as galley slaves rowing the boat at the bottom of the ship. Wow. Slaves were not those who did the work for glory or fame. They were beholden to their master. And this is who Paul considered himself to be. He was a slave, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was purchased, redeemed by the blood of his Savior. He, his life is now dedicated to serving Christ, not for his fame, but for the Lord's. And the Corinthians were giving the glory and fame to Paul. Paul is saying, you are boasting in me like I am the king of the kingdom. I'm not a king in the kingdom. You know who I am? I'm the bottom slave galley rower at the bottom of the ship. That's who we are. That's who I want you to consider us as so you can understand the proper mode of humility to heal the division that you are quarreling about. Essentially, Corinthians, you are, you are debating about which galley slave is better than the other. Which galley slave owns the boat that they're rowing? Neither of them. And that's what I want you to see. Paul saw his whole life in this way. He begins often by his epistles. For example, in Romans chapter 1, 1, this is what he says to the Romans. Paul, a servant or a slave, a doulos of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Philippians 1, 1, he says this to the Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves of Christ Jesus. To the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Yet Paul saw his whole life as one that was indebted in service to King Jesus. Paul is saying, I don't see myself like you see me. Neither does Jesus, so stop it. Why should you seek me and my fame and my glory unlike how Jesus does or how I see myself or how Apollo sees himself? Don't regard us as celebrities in which you should divide over, but as slaves of Christ Jesus who are trying to glorify their master by rowing the boat and moving it forward as we've been told to do. Not only as a servant of Christ. But he says here also as stewards. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards. What's a steward? A steward was the most important servant in the first century Roman household. He was, 
He was one of the slaves in the household, and he would be responsible for overseeing the master's finances, property, and other slaves. He would be the one that kept the whole estate of the master in check. He'd be the one to delegate responsibilities and to check for financial accountability. He would be the one who managed the property. Think of like a property manager. That's who he was. This is what Paul says. This is another way I want you to regard us. One, as the lowest of the galley slaves, and secondly, as a property manager. The property manager doesn't own the property. The finances don't belong to him. He's only been charged to care for what his master owns. He has been given a task by the master and a responsibility to look after and manage well his master's estate. This is who I am. This is what Paul says. And any faithful pastor should regard himself in the same way as well. As the lowest of galley slaves and as a manager of God's house, of God's people. We've been given a tall task, a high order. The king is coming back. And when he comes, he ought to find that his leaders, his elders and deacons and churches should be well ordering the, his business. And yet, we have pastors and churches that, that live like they own the place. They live like it's all about them. May that never be so. This place is not about you. This place is not about me. Who are we? We're all servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been told to manage well what he's given us to manage. This is his church, his flock, his body, his temple, not ours. So why should you be fighting over one property manager over the other when they don't even own what they are managing? They've been tasked with one job, faithfulness. And we see that in verse 2. Stewards of the mysteries of God, he says. Specifically, what are we to steward? The mysteries of God. The mysteries of God is a word often used in the New Testament And it essentially means the same thing every time. When Paul mentions mysteries, he's talking about things that were not clear in the Old Testament that are now made true or clear in the New Testament. Things that were hidden have now been unveiled. One of those mysteries would be the gospel. The gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Jewish people who were stewards of the oracles of God, Paul says in Romans chapter 3.20. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had the responsibilities, the prophecies. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. Pass that down to the next generation. Guard this truth well. The Messiah will come one day. But now that he's here, Paul has unveiled it. Christ has unveiled it. For the world to see. God by his spirit is proclaiming Jesus to everybody. What was hidden in the Old Testament. You didn't know his name. You didn't know how he was going to look like. You didn't know when he was going to be born. Now the mystery has been unveiled. And now we've been guarded as a property manager. To take care of his business. These are his people. He's saving his elect from all four corners of the world. This is his gospel, his message, his resources, his people. It all belongs to him. 
And now, we need to guard and properly manage this, these mysteries. Primarily what Paul is saying there is he's talking about truth, the teaching of the Scriptures. God gave the Jewish people shadows in the Old Testament that all pointed to Christ. They, did, they had different pieces of the puzzle, but they didn't know how the puzzle pieces fit together. And now that the New Testament is here and that the Jesus has come, Paul says, I've been a manager of the steward mysteries of God. God has given us and the church the, the truth, the understanding to put these puzzle pieces together. And now we must guard the gospel. We must guard the whole counsel of God. We must proclaim the word of God from beginning to end. This is my job, is to protect and guard the master's truth. This is what we've been called to do. And this is why it is a high calling of any elder or pastor to preach the word of God. This is why we're here this morning. We're here to worship King Jesus who rose again from the dead. Amen? And we have commanded to read the word, Sing the word, pray the word, preach the word, and we're going to see the word in the ordinances later. We're doing all these things because these are mysteries that God has given us to guard and to protect and to celebrate on the Lord's day. But one of the greatest responsibilities I will ever have as your pastor is to open up this book and not tell you what is on my agenda, but to tell you what God says. And this is why we preach verse by verse. This is why we preach exegetical sermons through the whole books of the Bible. We don't get to set the agenda. What do we do? We just preach the next verse. That's what is coming up. Well, the next verse is awkward. So be it. The next verse is going to step on some toes. Good. The next verse could be a little boring. Well, tough. The next verse is just like the three other chapters. Good. God repeated himself, so it must be important. This is my job, is to steward this word from this pulpit to feed you, his people. This is the job of a faithful pastor. This is how you should regard us, Paul says, as a property manager, caring for God. God's property, God's business, what he has left behind. And what is required of a steward? Verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That is what is required of faithful ministers. And we've talked about this a few weeks ago. God is not going to judge pastors or churches based on how big they are or how creative they were. God is going to judge them based on how faithfully they guarded and stewarded what he has given them to manage. This is what stewards are. The job of a steward was not to go crazy with their own agenda. The job of a steward was to say, this is what God has said, this is what God has said to do, and this is what we're doing. And we're going to be found faithful in obeying him. This is not new as we've seen. The Jews had this charge in Romans 3.20. Paul says they were entrusted with the oracles of God. In Galatians 2.7, Paul says this as well with the gospel to the Galatians. He says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that's the Jews. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. 
Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. But look what he says. We've been entrusted. God has given us this to guard, to protect, to proclaim. This is why the gospel must be protected in every generation. Because Satan will always tries to pervert the gospel. Either by addition or subtraction. The gospel is always the same. It can never be added to. It can never be taken away. It can never be clarified. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And that if sinners repent of their sins and believe in Jesus who died for them as their substitute and rose again on the third day, they can be forgiven of their sins and saved. That's the gospel. Nothing can be added to it or taken away. If it is, you have another gospel. And this is what we have today. All you have to do is turn on so-called Christian TV and you'll find all kinds of different gospels. All you got to do is just go on the internet and look up different ministries and you've had different gospels. Gospels that have not been stewarded well by those people. Paul says to Timothy, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He says it again here. Essentially, Paul says, who am I? I am a steward. You are acting like I own this truth. You are acting like I own this church. I am the lowest of the galley boat rowers. I am a manager now of God's word that he's entrusted me to manage and guard and protect. This is how I want you to regard us, brothers. Consider who we are. Because when you do, you will stop elevating us to high levels of fame and celebrity that you have to divide over. Let's look at verse 3. Now Paul is going to address some of their criticism, uh, criticism of him. And this would probably be the people who followed Apollos. What were the people who followed Apollos saying about Paul? And because remember, they were hating on either apostle. Addressing the Apollites, he says in verse 3, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Here's what Paul's saying. The court of public opinion matters very little in his eyes. He says, Corinthians, I'm warning you here. You're trying to bring me down. You're trying to make Apollos better than me. But what you have to understand is that your opinion of me will not affect how I live my life. Your opinion of me or the praise of my followers will not affect me in the slightest way. Now, what kind of criticism can the Apollites have of Paul? Well, one, and he's already mentioned it twice, they were probably attacking his speaking ability. Believe it or not, the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, we've told, we're known that he wasn't a good speaker. Apollos had very much giftedness in that way. And his lack of eloquent speaking ability was something that the followers of Paulos, who was a good speaker, attacked us. Well, our guy can preach better than your guy. 
right? Our guy is better than your guy. And so Paul is probably addressing this because he mentions it in 117 and also chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He said that he considers it a small thing to be judged by them or any human court. Paul even says, I don't even judge myself. Now, what's he mean by that? He's not saying I'm innocent or I'm above your um, rightful critique. What he's saying is, I'm leaving that in the hands of God. I've learned to leave that to God to evaluate and judge me. Judgment is reserved for God. So don't be so trigger happy accusing people or questioning their motives before Jesus comes back according to your human traditions, your philosophy, or your preferences. Because none of those things hold any weight in the court of God's opinion. None of them. I will not be beholden to your criticism unjustly in my eyes. Because all of these things were brought to light. Look, Paul's saying, am I perfect? No. And he's saying, there's nothing in my mind that I know I need to repent of. But hey, I know I'm not perfect. And I'm not saying I'm doing everything greatly. But even then, I will trust God to judge me. I will trust God who will know the true motives of my heart. He will know what I did for God for the right motives. And he will know what I didn't do for God for the right motives. And like he said in, chap- in the previous chapter, he says all those things, all the things I did for God's glory, all the things I did in faithfulness to God, those things will be rewarded. And all those things that I didn't do well for God, all those things that I had improper motives, all those things where I was selfish or I had me in the way, guess what? When I stand before God, when I stand before Jesus Christ at his judgment seat, all those other things will burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. They will all burn up because they don't matter. But my God, the faithful judge, will reward his faithful servants according to how they glorified him, not in all the ways they have failed him. And like that's going to stick with me forever because I am in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is not going to play games with the followers of Apollos. He's not going to... Uh, Let what they think of him drive how he lives his life. So don't bring condemnation. Let God do that for the right reasons. Paul wasn't going to be a man pleaser. He wasn't going to live for people's praise. Nor was he going to die by their criticism. Can, Can we just pause here for a minute to say... How often we all fall into this trap. We care way too much what other people think of us, don't we? I think there's a lot of wisdom here. Some of us have these things as idols in our hearts. The praise of other people, your heart longs after. And when you don't get it, what happens? You're down, you're discouraged. You're depressed. And when you do something wrong and someone criticizes you, whether justly or unjustly, you die by their criticism. You can't get over the fact that someone doesn't like you. And trust me, I'm talking to me. (laughs) Right? Because Dan likes to make everybody happy, in case you didn't know. I I like to make, I want everyone to be happy and getting along and... You know, hey, Dan, go. Good job, Dan. That's good. 
And I've struggled with different periods of my life of living by people's praise or dying by their criticism. And what I've sought, what I've learned to learn in my life is I need to repent of that idolatry because all I'm trying to seek is for my own credibility, my own fame, my own pat on the back. Other people's opinion should not drive me and how I think of myself. I need to go to God. Whether they are applauding me, I should not listen to it. Why? Because God knows the true motives of my heart. Or whether they are dissing me and downing me, I should not let that get too much in the way. Why? Because even though I may have done something well that someone didn't like, I should know that it's only God's opinion that matters and God knows the motives of my heart, whether it was pure or not. And in the end, since I'm in Jesus Christ, all the bad things will just burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. They won't exist anymore. And I will stand before Christ with no condemnation, nothing to be shamed of. What a blessing that is. Amen? We, we let idolatry of self and self-image, and we let ourselves be held prisoner by other people and their opinion of us. And Paul's simply telling them, I'm not going to let you do that to me. I'm not going to let you, followers of Apollos, heap on me all this judgment from God. You are no judge according to your own traditions. Now, of course, we can issue right judgment and right criticism. That's not what Paul's saying. He's approaching it. The context is their selfish pride, right? Their selfish pride, their unjust criticism based on human standards of philosophy and worldly wisdom. What drives that in us to want that and crave that? And if you're honest, you're like that. One way or another. Maybe you're a little bit of both. <laughs> Living by people's praise or dying by their criticism. Oh, that's a sin that we need to repent of because we're putting ourselves number one instead of God. We're worshiping ourselves and our own self-image more than God. Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, if any man thinks ill of you, and I'm going to have Andy put this on my office wall here for a minute. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> I'm not going to let what you say about me, Apollites, get me up or get me down. Corinthians. Why? Because the Lord knows the real Paul. The Lord knows that all those things, God will reward me when I glorified him and all those things I did for me, God will burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. So don't reserve judgment until Jesus comes back because that's when the real judgment happens. Look at verse 6. He says, I have applied all these things to myself. What things? Well, how do you consider yourself? A galley slave and a property manager. And let's not forget two weeks ago, what, what else did Paul say? Bus boy. <laughs> I mean, he's given him enough. I'm a bus boy. I'm a galley slave. I'm a property manager. I mean, how any pastor can puff himself up into being greater than he thinks he is, is beyond me. <laughs> And when Paul says these things about himself, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one 
against another. He's using Apollos and himself as examples so that they will know how to apply the same truth to themselves as Paul has done to himself and to Apollos. And here's the key. God's people ought to be a humble people. The Corinthians sin in this way, the first four chapters, were being puffed up, that's prideful, in favor of one against another. And how to learn, and here's how you solve it, here's how to solve your pride and to humble yourself, to not go beyond what is written. What is he saying? You are no judge of somebody else according to your preferences or your opinion of something. The only way we have right judgment or critique of another person is if it's done in love and in truth according to what has been written. That is how we are to judge one another. What is the standard? God's word. And you know what? This is what Paul has been doing this whole letter. Let me show you quickly. We're not going to turn there, but you could write it down. Paul is judging them because, I mean, if not, Paul would be a hypocrite. Because what's he doing in this letter? Judging them, calling them out for their sin. He's not saying not to judge incorrectly or critically, but do not go beyond what is written. If you have a brother or sister who is in sin, it is your responsibility in love to go to that brother and sister and say, look, I love you too much to let you keep living that way. I need to help you learn that what you're doing is not right or healthy. And it's a sin against God. Do not go beyond what is written. And Paul's critique of them through four chapters, he quotes five scriptures to prove his point. He quotes in 1 Corinthians 1.19, Isaiah 29.14. He quotes in 1 Corinthians 1.31, Jeremiah chapter 9.22. He quotes in 1 Corinthians 2.9, Isaiah 64. He quotes in 1 Corinthians 3.19, Job 5.13. And 1 Corinthians 3.20, Psalm 94.11. What is Paul saying? I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. How can we judge people like I've been judging you in this letter? How? This is what God has said. So do not go above what is written. Oh, Apollos is a better, is a better speaker, so Paul is a loser. Did God say that? Did God say that only the ones he uses are the ones who are the most gifted? Please. Scripture and verse, brother. I don't think so. I have learned to apply this to myself for what? For your benefit, so that you may not be prideful and puffed up against one another. Scripture is our guide. Scripture is our standard. If we were to say something is sinful, then you better show us in the word where it is sinful. Do not go beyond what is written. Now, verse 7, Paul gets a little sassy. Look at verse 7. He gets a little sarcastic as he's trying to make his points. He says in verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you have not, that what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's saying, You're judging me, Corinthians, but are you any different? 
Are you above criticism? Who makes you better than someone else? Your good qualities, your talents, your giftedness, where does that come from? You're bragging in what you can do like it's from you? That would be like the galley slave who says he owns the ship. That would be like the property manager who says all this is his and his belongings. What do you have that you have not received? Everything's been given to you by God. All of this is from God. So for you to criticize me for not having well-speaking abilities and giftedness in that way is not to critique me, but to critique God. You're blaming God who's the one who gives all these gifts to everybody. What do you have that you didn't receive? You're putting God on trial, Corinthians, for blaming God for my lack of speaking ability because God did not give me that gift. Everything you have been given has been given to you for his glory, for a purpose. <laughs> and now verse 8 is interesting. This is, where he, this is where he gets a little sarcastic. Oh, already you have all you want. You don't need anybody. Already you have become rich. He's talking spiritual blessings. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. You guys think you're so awesome. You think you're so great. You think you can make judgments of other people like you have arrived. Like you are the epitome and the example for the world of what all Christians ought to be. You have everything you want. You're rich. You're kings. You don't need anybody to be complete in Jesus. Wow. I wish that were true because I'd love to rule, reign with you. Share a little bit of the, of the wealth this way, Corinthians. Share a little bit of the glory this way, if that's true. He's speaking sarcastically. Like, he's trying to make his point. Like, hello, I'm telling you who we are, and you are acting the complete opposite you are acting like you are God's greatest gift to humanity. I don't think so. Look what he says in verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels. And to men. You know what God has regarded us? You know how God thinks of us? What God has done through us? You want to elevate us. But you know what God says? We're the last of all men. You're trying to put us first place. We're number one. You know, just like, you know, you go to a football game and the fans have like the foam fingers. We're number one, you know. Yeah, I could just see in the Corinthian church them with foam fingers. Paul's number one. Apollo's number one. Right? Well, number one, God has shown us to be last, not first. God has shown us to be low, not high. And look at this. Not only last, but we are like men sentenced to death. We're on death row, guys. This is who we are. Who are we? We're men on death row. And God has put us who are on death row as a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. 
The word spectacle here in, in, in the Greek is where we get our word theater. God has, because we have become a theater to the world, to observe God's servants so that they could be examples of humility and of service to their king. God has called us to die and service them for preaching the gospel. God has called us to humility and be theaters of faithfulness unto death. And you're lifting us up as spectacles to be divided over. Insane. Now compare this with how some modern day heretics speak. Charlton's speak, who are in supposed ministry. Just this week I saw a video with Jesse Duplantis bragging about his 40,000 square foot mansion. Or Kenneth Copeland bragging about his jets and cars. Or Joel Osteen, living your best life now, be a champion, that's who you are. Paul says, no, I'm a galley slave, bro. I'm on death row for the world to see like a theater play. That's who I am. God has called us to humility and to be theaters of faithfulness unto death. You're lifting us up like spectacles to be divided over. Shame on you. Paul continues with this sarcasm. Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. He's trying to draw the contrast between their sinful pride and true humility given by God. You want to know what God has called apostles to do? You want to know how good we have it? Look at verse 11. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. No 40,000 square foot mansions here. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. By the way, in Greek culture, this was the lowest of lows. As a first century Greek, you didn't work with your hands. You hired slaves to do it for you. And what did Paul say? We work with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is incredible. I mean, can Paul say any more <laughs> degrading things, lowly things about who he thinks he is? We have become and are still like the scum of the world. He's speaking about how the world sees them, not how God sees them, how the world sees them. This word, this word for scum of the world, the best equivalent in our English language is dirty water. Think of your bath water or your dish water as you're cleaning the dishes and it gets murky and gross and, so, you know, Anyway, you get the picture. We're the scum of the world. We're like dirty water that you do from washing the dishes. That's how the world sees us. We didn't do this for our fame. 
And we're the refuse of all things. This word was also used for the dirt removed from the body, ceremonial cleaning, scraping off the pot and all the garbage that remained after the cooking was done. That's who we are, the scum of the world. That's how the world sees us. But in contrast, hey, you live your life like kings. Like, who do you think you are? Look at verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. Like, can you imagine the... But Paul's really beating us up, man. I mean, he is really going to town on them. He says, I'm not writing this to embarrass you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. This is how Paul sees them. As children, his children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in, father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You have a lot of people telling you where to go and what to do, Corinthians, or to celebrating you and, your, and puffing up yourself in your pride. But the problem, Corinthians, that you need is that you need a dad. That's what you need. You need someone to whip you on the behind when you need it. You have too many people cheering you on and celebrating you. You need someone. You need someone like a dad to come say, I love you too much to keep living like that. Here's a spanking. Here's some discipline. Learn from your mistakes. You need corrective discipline, Corinthians. And I became a father to you because I came and preached the gospel for 18 months and lived with you. And so I feel a responsibility towards you. This is what a good father does. He gives correction, discipline. A father who is one who has to speak harsh and hard words to his children in love because he is speaking truth, especially when he says things to them that they don't want to hear. This is what Paul's doing here. He's being like a dad, but it's for their good. I urge you then, be imitators of me, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Listen to Timothy. I sent him there to you. He will show you what you ought to do. And what I want you to do is to be an imitator of me. And he will later say, imitate me as I follow Christ. Do not follow me because I am some great glorious example of heaven. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Imitate me as I follow Jesus. This is what true discipleship is. It's imitating another person in their faith and following Christ. In verse 18, he addresses them about how he's coming to come see them. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Some are saying, we can say whatever we want about Paul. It's like he's ever going to show up again. Paul says, people are coming and talking about me like I'm never coming to you again. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out the talk of these arrogant people. Not the, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Hmm. He says, I'm coming to see you. And when I come... 
I'm going to find out what these people are saying. And I'm going to show you that it's not the truthfulness of their speech that they're trying to get. These people just want to be in charge. They have greedy power, desire for power and control. And I'm going to show you when I get there. And that's not the way the kingdom of God is. It's not consist in talking man-made ways, but in the power of God. And then he gives them a wish. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Basically what he's saying is, I've called you guys to repent of this silliness. Now when I come to see you, do I need to come bring my belt? Or are we going to have a good time? Because that's what a dad does. This is the equivalent of your mom saying to you, just wait until your father gets home. (laughs) Just wait until he gets home. I heard that a couple times in my life. Well, more than a couple. But even then, as we conclude this sermon and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, let me encourage you with something. Paul is not our ideal model of humility. Paul has much to be commended for as he wrote this under an inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he's not the epitome of humility. For even the Lord had to give him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited. We see that in another passage. Who is the ultimate example of our humility? Is the Lord Jesus. Out of all the people who should have been the most boastful and prideful, Christ Jesus gave us the perfect example of how to live as a servant of God. We read it earlier, but let's look at it one more time. Do nothing from selfish ambition, Paul writes to the Philippians, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Whoa. This is not what the Corinthians were doing, were they? They were considering themselves to be more significant than the followers of Paul or Apollos. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he gives an example how Jesus lived his life. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. That's what it says of the Lord Jesus. The servant, that's the word slave, again, just like Paul said. Being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form. What did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Why does Paul say the things he does? Because the Lord Jesus is his example. Remember what he says? We're like men sentenced to death as a theater to the world. I'm a galley slave. Where does he get this from? It's the example of his master. Jesus, who came humbly to this world to die for the sins of his people, didn't come glorying in vanity, although All of creation was beholden to him. He took on the form of a human body. The incarnate, eternal God. Eternal Son of God. 
pre-existent, he's always existed, came to this world and took on a human body and subjected himself in humility as a slave in obedience to God the Father. Gave his life, even to the point of death. And Paul says, even death on a cross. Not just dying. Oh, he even died on a cross willingly. Why? Because that comes from humility and obedience to God. This is what the Corinthians needed. Humility. Humility of knowing how to look at their leaders and also humility as how to see themselves. May we have the example of the Lord Jesus within us and know how to respond to God, to repent of sin, to flee from idolatry of people's praise or living by their criticism like they have the final say in judgment on earth. Now, when we're wrong, we repent. When they do not go beyond what is written. But when they do, we ignore them. We do not consider ourselves to be better than we really are because we know we're not and God knows the real us. Humble yourself to consider who you are justly and rightly. Father, help us now as we observe the Lord's table. Thank you for this wonderful chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Lord, we covered much ground. But Lord, such a blessing to encounter this truth accordance with how you want us to live as humble slaves, slaves of righteousness, slaves of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we, he does not treat us harshly. He treats us far better than we deserve. And God, we live by his grace and mercy. God, may we rightly consider who we are as believers. God, may you continue to humble us that we might have a right perspective on church leaders that they're also sinners saved by grace. Oh God, help us. Thank you for this helpful chapter. Now lead us in repentance as we remember Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.